Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, all, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I am here with Deb, and this is an educational, historical endeavor that we have been doing for a couple of years. So everyone, welcome, and how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing just fine, thank you. Oh, good. Um, I'm having a horrible, horrible, wintry mix storm. It's been raging all day. I'm waiting for the the thick, loud lightning to come, (laughs) thunder and lightning. Believe it or not, with these wintry mixed storms, we do get thunder. It's weird. When I first moved up here to the mountains of Montana, I said, how can it be kind of snowing and then the thunder come? But it does. So if I get kicked off, I will attempt to get back on the show, and, of course, Deb will take over and save the day. All right. Sure. Why not? And I'm chasing leaks, leaky roof stuff all over my RV. It has just been a thrilling day. Anyhow, we're going to do something uh, different. I didn't, I'm still going to be in the middle theater. I, I swear, we've been here for like almost two months, haven't we? Or a month? Two months, yeah. <sighs> and we're going to highlight another loyalist. Normally what we do is we rotate... Loyalists with Patriots, women, of course, this is the women of the revolution. But um, I found a Jewish woman. And upon more exploring, I figured out that she was a loyalist. Or, like, in the middle. How can we explain this? Well, well. She, her family was loyalist. Her, uh, but of men, and she, you know, followed suit, but did stay friends with the patriot, you know, with her patriot people that she knew. So. Right, and the other thing we're going to be highlighting, which is we have never done this. This is going to be generational because the first lady we're going to do is the second lady's grandmother. And the second lady is going to go, is around during the revolution where the grandmother is pre-revolution. But the most interesting part is that they're Jewish. We have not really highlighted the Jewish people that lived in America during the colonial times. And yes, Obama, Caesar, Jews were here, Muslims were not. Although, Deb, he was correct that the Muslims were part of American history because we were fighting them. Well, yeah, the barbarians. They were our enemies. Yeah, they took money so from the government so they wouldn't take their ship. The pirates 
but Muslim pirates wouldn't um, take the American ships. Right, but the Jews actually were here, Obama, Caesar, from the beginning of the colonial colonization of America. They actually were, because our country is based on Judeo-Christian values. They were Jews. The rest of the colonies were Christians. I wish to hell our children would ever learn this, but I didn't even learn it. And I went, I, actually, I did learn it, but I went to Catholic school. <laughs> but I didn't know anything about the Jews coming here. Our history's been so robbed from us. It, it, it just, again, every time I do this show, Deb, I'm either crying or I'm angry. <laughs> so, with that said, we're going to start with the history, Jewish history, um, in the colonies. So this is from JewishMag.com. Uh, let's see. Individual Jews had been part of the American experience long before the establishment of the community of New Amsterdam in 1654. Jews were part of the failed settlement efforts of the infamous lost colony of Roanoke Island, Virginia, in 1597 under Sir Walter Raleigh. Jews arrived on the second boat after the pilgrims landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1607. Jews were part of the early colonial efforts at Jamestown, Virginia in 1620. And by 1700, there was an estimated 250 identifiable Jews in American English colonies. Now, I'm going to need you um, to get up about the uh, Sephardic Jews. Okay. Because um, I'm going to be coming up to that soon. Okay. The Dutch burglars of New Amsterdam made a fundamental demand on Jews living in New Netherlands because, remember, New York was, was first settled by the Dutch, and we've said that before. And that was that they should not become financial burdens on the greater Christian community. Jews had to establish themselves economically Within a year of 1654, Jewish fur traders had ventured as far south as present-day southern New Jersey and Delaware and north high up the Hudson River. Louis Moses Gomez, a Jew of Sephardic background, purchased 6,000 acres of land on the frontier in 1714. Shortly afterward, he built his home as a trading center there. Now, we're going to stop because these, these Jews came from different parts of the world. And when you explain the differences between the two types of Jews that were here, it'll make sense because his last name is Gomez. Yes. So you're like, wait a minute, that's not Jewish. Yeah, well, no, it's not because Jews were spread out all across Europe. Yes. Okay, so this is from um, JewishFacts.org. Uh, says, and I, I hope I say this correctly because it doesn't have a way to say it here, but... Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jews represent two distinct subcultures of Judaism. We are all Jews and share the same basic beliefs. Well, they're talking about the, these two, you know, the Jewish culture here. But there are some variations in culture and practice. It's not clear when the split began, but it has existed for more than a thousand years because around the year 1000 CE, Rabbi Gershom ben Judah 
issued an edict against polygamy that was accepted by Ashkenazim, but not by Sephardim. So who are the Ashkenazic Jews? Ashkenazic Jews are the Jews of France, Germany, and Eastern Europe and their descendants. The adjective Ashkenazic and corresponding nouns, Ashkenazi and Ashkenazim, plural, the other one singular, are derived from the Hebrew word Ashkenaz, which is used to refer to Germany. Most American Jews today are Ashkenazim, descended from Jews who emigrated from Germany and Eastern Europe from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. Who are the Sephardic Jews? Sephardic Jews are the Jews of Spain, Portugal, North Africa, and the Middle East, and their descendants. The adjective Sephardic, in corresponding nouns, Sephardi, singular, and Sephardim, plural, are derived from the Hebrew word Sephardim which refers to Spain. Sephardic Jews are often subdivided into Sephardim from Spain and Portugal and Mizrahim from the northern Africa and the Middle East. The word Mizrahi comes from the Hebrew word for Eastern. There is much overlap between the Sephardim and the Mizrahim. Until the 1400s, the Iberian Peninsula, North Africa, and the Middle East were all controlled by Muslims, who generally allowed Jews to move freely throughout the region. It was under this relatively benevolent rule that Sephardic Judaism developed. When the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, many of them were absorbed into existing Mizrahi communities in Northern Africa and the Middle East. Most of the early Early Jewish settlers of North America were Sephardic. The first Jewish congregation in North America, Shiris Israel, founded in what is now New York in 1684, was Sephardic and is still active. Philadelphia's first Jewish congregation, Congregation Mikra Israel, founded in 1740, was also a Sephardic one and is also still active. And then it goes on about uh, uh, Israel, but... The beliefs of, the, of Sephardic Judaism are basically in accord with those of Orthodox Judaism, though Sephardic inter, interpretations of halakha, uh, Jewish law, are someone, somewhat different from Ashkenazic ones. The best known of these differences relates to the holiday of Pesach, Passover. Sephardic Jews may eat rice, corn, peanuts, and beans during this holiday, while Ashkenazic Jews avoid them. Although some individual Sephardic Jews are less observant than others, and some individuals do not agree with all the beliefs of traditional Judaism, there is no formal organized differentiation into movements as there is in Ashkenazic Judaism. Historically, Sephardic Jews have been more integrated into the local non-Jewish culture than Ashkenazic Jews. In the Christian lands where Ashkenazic Judaism flourished, the tension between Christians and Jews was great, and Jews tended to be isolated from their non-Jewish neighbors, either voluntarily or involuntarily. In the Islamic lands where Sephardic Sephardic Judaism developed, there was less segregation and oppression. Sephardic Jewish thought and culture was strongly influenced by Arabic and Greek philosophy and science. Sephardic Jews have a different pronunciation of a few Hebrew vowels than one Hebrew consonant. Though most Ashkenazim are adopting Sephardic pronunciation now because it is the pronunciation used in Israel. Uh, the Yiddish language, which 
many people think of as the international language of Judaism is really the language of Ashkenazic Jews. Sephardic Jews have their own international language, Ladino, which was based on Spanish and Hebrew in the same way that Yiddish was based on German and Hebrew. So that is the difference between the two um, subcultures. And we might lose Susan because of her storm. Yeah, no, I'm here. You're there. You okay. sound like you were breaking up, though. Well, I don't know why that is. Because hey, you're on the landline, right? Yeah. That was kind of weird. It might ah. be on my end. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's really important to bring up because most people do not know anything about uh, the Jews that were here. And you can see that they came from different parts of the world. Yeah. And I'm surprised that, um, well, we'll get into a little bit more. But, yeah, the, uh, the, the later Jews, as I'm going to read, do come from the Middle East, a lot of them, because it started getting dicey. And the Muslims have been around for a long time, but the Jews have been along, around before the Muslims, just so everybody knows. Tired of that, too. Okay, so back to Jewish mag. Religious toleration and freedom for Jews were not defined in Jewish terms, but rather America, American. Jewish political freedom and inclusion was even longer and more difficult in coming. Political equality was not to be universally realized until well into the second half of the 19th century. So I'm going to go to another little article, little essay, Jewish Pathways. The history of Jews in America begins before the United States was an independent country. The first Jews arrived in America was Columbus in 1492, and we also know that Jews newly converted to Christianity were among the first Spaniards to arrive in Mexico with conquistador Hernandez Cortez, Hernando Cortez in 1519. And that's what we were talking about, the Sephardic Jews, which were from Spain. Um, well, you know, you had to mention Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. Uh, in fact, so many Jewish conversos came to Mexico that the Spanish made a rule precluding anyone who could not prove Catholic ancestry for four generations back from migrating there. Needless to say, the Inquisition soon followed to make sure these Jewish conversos were not really heretics, and burnings at the stake became a regular, regular feature of life in Mexico City. Mexicans are just wonderful people. As for North America, the recorded Jewish history there begins in 1654 with the arrival in New Amsterdam, later to be known as New York, of the 23 Jewish refugees from Recife, Brazil, where the Dutch had just lost their possessions to the Portuguese. New Amsterdam was also a Dutch possession, but the governor, Peter Stuyvesant, did not want the Jews there. Writes author Hertzberg in The Jews in America, two weeks after they landed, Stevenson heard from the complaints from the local merchants and from the church that the Jews who had arrived would nearly all like to remain here. Now, this I know the background for this, so I'm just going to tell you briefly. First of all, the merchants were threatened because Jews were very, 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 very good merchants. And they had evolved to be very good merchants because they did not want to be beasts of burden anymore. They didn't, they didn't take to labor because they had been slaves for 400, 4,000 years, I think it was. Was it 4,000 or 400? 
Well, by then, four, well, 4,000, because they were slaves in Egypt. And, and before that, they were slaves in Babylonia. They had taken that. What they did is where, where the Jews left, were lived. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar literally took the Jew, the, the whole Jew, Jewish nation, and moved it to Babylonia. Yeah. You know, just ripped them from their land. So these Jews, they, they, as over time, they were not, they didn't want to do labor anymore, ladies and gentlemen. They were the first slaves. So these merchants were threatened by them because of how thrifty they were, how good in business they were, and they already had connections with the Dutch. That was that point. The other point is with the, with the Christian churches, a lot of them, like even the Puritans, although they did say that the Puritans thought of themselves as the Jews exiting from uh, Egypt when as they were leaving the places that they were persecuted from. But there was still a lot, especially the Catholics, that really didn't agree with, you know, because first of all, they the Jewish religion didn't believe that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior. I don't either, by the way. I thought I think he was a great prophet, and I thought he was a wonderful man, and I follow his teachings, but he is not God. There's only one God, and that's what the Jews believe. So that's a little bit of an ethnethema to the Christian religion, correct? Yeah, yeah. That's And, and you have to realize that the, the Catholic Church is... is uh, they... Uh, they are, um, well, they went off in a different direction. I don't think Peter or Paul would recognize the Christ in the Vatican, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Popeye? Huh? As we, as Popeye, as we lovingly call him. Well. We call him, Brian and I call him Popeye. Well, having been raised a Protestant. See, the Pope has has. I mean, he's just another guy that's, you know, he he's, he doesn't have the the ear of God any more than any of us do. So, right. I know it's different in the Catholic religion. I was raised Catholic, and he sits at me. Because I said that I'm going to hell according to the Catholics. So I have a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a mm, no. Well, according to every single Christian religion, I don't believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm going to hell, too, so I'll see you there. We're both screwed. Okay, well, anyways, <laughs> not as screwed as the Jews were. No. Right. So using the usual formulas of religious incentive, he called the Jews repugnant, deceitful, and enemies and blasphemers of Christ. Stuyvesant recommended to his directors to require them in a friendly way to depart. The only reason the Jews were not turned away was that the Dutch West Indian Company, which was heavily dependent on the Jewish investments, blocked it. By 1776 and the War of Independence, there were an estimated 2,000 mostly Sephardic Jews, men, women, and children living in America. Yet though their numbers were were relatively small, their contribution to the cause was significant. For example, in Charleston, South Carolina, almost every adult Jewish male fought on the side of freedom. In Georgia, the first patriot to be killed was a Jew, Francis Salvador, again with a Spanish last name because of the Sephardic part. And additionally, the Jews provided significant financing to the patriots. The most important of the financiers was Hyman Solomon, who lent a great deal of money to the Continental Congress. In the last days of the war, Solomon advanced the American government 
$200,000, which is a lot. He ne- was never paid back and died bankrupt. Well, President George Washington, huh? Well, I was just going to say, you know, the Jews, Jews really know how to budget and save, which is something the Christians could take a good lesson from, speaking politically. Well, yeah, and that's that's another reason why they get the bad rap because the people are jealous. <laughs> yeah. President George Washington remembered the Jewish contribution when the first synagogue opened in Newport, Rhode Island, in 1790. It was called the Turno Synagogue, and it was Sephardic. He sent this letter dated August 17, 1790. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in the land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit safely under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be no one to make him afraid. And I know I'm going past the, the continental of the uh, war, but um, I, I want to get this in because this is, this is really important that we know, we know all of our heritage, including the people that made up this country. You know, it wasn't just, this is why it kills me when everyone's screaming for diversity. We've always been diverse. Always. Just not the way that these profs want us to be. We've always had tolerance for other people. And yes, we had slavery. We got over all that. The difference The difference between then and now is the fact that, um, you know, we included them in our, in our communities, you know, um, yeah, there were the, you know, the, the people that didn't feel comfortable with, you know, that they didn't go to their church or they weren't Christians, but uh, those are the people that didn't understand the Bible, in my estimation. But the, the difference is that we don't, we don't put them all, we, the, the, the founders didn't really put them all into little groups, you know, little different blocks. You're American or, you know, you're a Tory or, or you're a patriot. Thank you. This was an interesting choice of words on the part of Washington, but as noted above, it is not surprisingly in the light of the enormous influence that the Hebrew Bible had on the pilgrims and on the founding fathers of a new nation. It must be noted, however, that some of the other founding fathers were a bit more ambivalent about the Jews than one with Washington. But Washington really was an accepting dude. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and so was Jefferson. And now we're going to do. Now we're going to do an example of John Adams, and then I'm going to explain why John Adams feels this way. Oh, yeah. John Adams, who had said some highly complimentary things about the Jews, also noted that. Quote, it is very hard to work to love most of them, unquote. He looks forward to the day when the austerities and peculiarities of their character would be worn away and they would become liberal Unitarian Christians. Okay, John Adams was a Bible-thumping Puritan. Yes. Hence why he did not do well in France. No. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, France is much yeah, no, yeah, no, they did things too differently in France. Woo-wee. Yeah, he, he, they, I still don't understand why they even sent him there. Um, so he, he would, he, this would be his view of the Jewish faith because, again, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. They right. just believe that, and they don't believe that he was the Messiah. 
They believe that the Messiah is still to come and that there's only one God. Um, the Christian faith, be, in order to get more people on the side of Christians, including pagans and, let's say, the Druids, um, they came up with the Holy Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, because most other religions at the time believed in multiple gods. The Egyptians believed in multiple gods. Um, where else was, where was Jesus crucified? They believed in multiple gods. So most of the other religions, um, even to Chinese religion, believes in, to this day, believes in, in multiple gods, if they're allowed to practice. Um, so they had to come up with the Father, Son, Holy Ghost as God, but in three different entities. So that's why they included Jesus as God. And that's why the Jews didn't. They don't worship um, saints. They don't worship, they just worship God. That's it. So, of course, he's going to have that attitude. So, but still, they were accepted. Thomas Jefferson thought Jews needed more secular learning so that they will become equal objects of respect and favor, implying that without such learning, they could not expect to be respected. Jefferson was thus expressing the view of the mainstream of the Enlightenment, that all men could attain equal place in society, but that the entrance fee was that they should adopt the ways and the outlook of the Enlightened. Jefferson did not consider that a Yiddish-speaking Jew who knew the Talmud was equal in usefulness to society with a classically trained thinker like himself. This is from uh, author, uh, uh, a writer, Arthur Hertzberg, in The Jews in America. I kind of, I don't know, I, to me, of studying Jefferson, Deb, I don't think Jefferson would have this, this kind of a thought process. Oh, I do. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... He was very um, uh, surgical in his analysis of of religion, um, and he hated religion. He he believed in God, but he hated you know established religion. And it, it the the I can see it because he, his bent was scientific. You know, he had that great scientific mind and and analytical mind. And he t- took apart religion. I mean, Christ, he went through his, you know, he made his own Bible. He, <laughs> he took out, you know, things from the Bible and made his own little book. But, um, well, actually, well, he did, but it, it, everyone keeps saying it's Jefferson's Bible. It's not. Like you're saying, he was surgical. He was experimenting. Yeah, you no. Want I, to say, if he took out that's these, what he did all his life, He and he changed throughout his life. If you, if you, you know, having read about him, he changes, but he was definitely into the Enlightenment, which was, you know, rational thinking. Now, you read the right. Talmud, you know, the, the Jewish faith takes a lot on faith. You know, they don't, they, it, 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 so many things unproven, whereas uh, the, the, um, the Enlightenment was more secular than, than religious, actually went in its analytical uh, part where they were looking at the different uh, philosophies and whatnot. Well, and with when you were talking about him um, with his own Bible, it, it's not his Bible. Well, he was doing an experiment, like you said, he's analytical. And he, he wanted to see if he took out Jesus' teachings, would it change the way the Bible was read? Yeah, and that was his experiment. 
to see. Yeah. So that there's no such thing as a Jeffersonian Bible. <laughs> no, no, I was Jefferson's Bible. I, I, meant I know, that. I know. It's just so funny because everybody says this, and Brian I know, always has arguments with people no, no. on Twitter about this. No, that's why, the, you know, they, he didn't have the Koran to uh, see how wonderful the Muslims were. He wanted to understand them so he could kill them. Yep, he wanted to understand his enemy. Yeah. There you go. This idea that there was freedom for you in America as long as you were not too Jewish, and this is what one of our ladies, or Rebecca, and I think I didn't tell anybody. Okay. The first lady is going to be Abigail Levy Franks and her granddaughter, Rebecca Franks, and she brings this up in her lifetime as a, a young girl in Philadelphia, um, not to be too Jewish, Okay kept most Jews away until 1820, the Jewish population of America was only about 6,000. This changed in the 1830s when reformed German Jews who had scrapped traditional Judaism and were not too Jewish began to arrive. The great migrations of poor, oppressed Jews from Eastern Europe would follow near the turn of the century. Okay, so that's the history of the Jews in the Americas. It wasn't only in Northern America. It was also in Southern America. And they have been around since the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. So it's very important to know that because we have gone so far away from religious tolerance, it isn't even funny. We have always been religiously tolerant. But know that just our country was Judeo-Christian, and that's just the bottom line. Now, with that, I'm going to have Deb introduce our lady, Abigail B.B. Frank. Okay. And um, before you do that, this is a very big family, by the way. The Levies and the Franks were a huge Jewish family back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah, they were, uh, um, and they were, they were uh, well-known in society, too. So, okay, this is from the Jewish Women's Archive uh, website. And her name was, now, I, I, it's B-I-L-A-H, and I'm thinking that's Byla, Abigail, I, Levy, Frank, um, and if I'm saying that, it, the, the Byla part incorrectly, now there's Bila or Byla, so, anyways, I don't think we have to worry about it too much, but I do like to try to say things correctly. No colonial American woman, and this is by Ellen Smith. No colonial American woman left a more engaging portrait of contemporary family, political, and social life than Abigail Franks. Her letters to her son, Naftali, in England, covering the year 1733 to 1748, discuss the lives of his growing siblings, political and social life in early 18th century New York City, her extensive reading, and her love of good Scottish nuts. You see, she's my kind of lady. The letters also shed extraordinary insight into the efforts of colonial American Jews to establish a functional equilibrium between being Jewish and being part of the larger colonial Christian society. Abigail Levy was born in London, the eldest of five children of German-Jewish immigrant Moses Raphael Levy and his first wife, Rechia Asher. Rechia I'm not sure how to say this either. I, I'm I'm Protestant. I'm sorry, even though I had you know sweet Jewish friends, um, never could get that thing going. The family moved to New York City by 1695, 
And in 1712, Abigail married London-born Jacob Franks, son of a German-Jewish merchant and broker in England. The Franks had nine children, born between 715 and 1742. Good God, that's a long time to be having kids. The family was active in New York's Jewish life. They belonged to Congregation Sharif, Sharif Israel, where Jacob Franks was one of four men to lay the cornerstone of the New Mill Street Synagogue in 1729, and where he served as syndic, the president, in 1730. And they were active in broader Christian society, among whose women Franks counted her best friends. Frank okay, can you hold on a minute? Let sure. me get into this uh, Sharif Israel thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, Congregation Sharif Israel, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in the, New York, in the city of New York, was founded in 1654, the first Jewish congregation to be established in North America. There were no mosques here. None. Ever. In colonial or even after. Um... Uh, its founders were 23 Jews, mostly of Spanish and Portuguese origin, who had been living in Recife, Brazil. When the Portuguese defeated the Dutch for control of Recife and brought with them the Inquisition, the Jews of that area left. Some returned to Amsterdam, where they had originated. Others went to places in the Caribbean, such as St. Thomas, Jamaica, Suriname, and Caracas, where they found Sister Sephardic Congregation. Um, one group of 23 Jews, after a series of unexpected events, landed in New Amsterdam. Uh, they were not welcomed by Governor Stuyvesant. We said that, too. Um, even from its early days, Sharif Israel had Sephardic and Ashkenazi members. Although the synagogue service follows the customs of Spanish and Portuguese Jews, the membership is diverse and at present is composed of both. Until the year 1730, the congregation met in rented quarters. In 1730, Sharif Israel consecrated its first synagogue building on Mill Street. Um, Sharif Israel was the only Jewish congregation in New York City from 1654 until 1825. Wow. That's quite a while. Mm hmm. Uh huh. Okay. Now, where was I? Mill Street and so many weird services. And they were Frank. Frank's revels in the openness of New York society, rejoicing in the fair character the family enjoyed among both Jews, both Christians and Jews. But the family never achieved the financial stability the Franks and Levy families had in England. And one by one, beginning around 1732, Jacob and Abigail sent their children to England in order to prosper. Abigail Franks probably never saw her adult children again after their departure or any of her English grandchildren. Oh, my broken heart. For the remainder of her life, the exchange of letters, painted portraits, and small gifts were the only contact she had with them. Thirty-seven letters of the Franks family are known to survive, dating from May 7, 7 1733 to October 30, 1748. All are addressed to Naftali Franks in England, 34 from Abigail, one is from Jacob, and two are written by his brother David. They discuss local politics, family and community activities, and aspects of the Franks family transatlantic business. 
But Abigail Frank's letters are most significant as an early American Jewish woman's extended thoughts on the fit and fate of Judaism in colonial New York. Frank's worked diligently to raise her children as practicing Jews. Daughters and sons received instruction in Hebrew, and the family practiced traditional Judaism, honoring the Sabbath, keeping kosher, and keeping the Jewish holidays. Frank's urged Naftali... Okay, and- stop for one minute. Just find, remember where your place is, okay? okay? Now, think about it. Even though they believed in God just like the Christians did, their practices, their practices and their customs were completely different than the rest of the colonists. Because even though the colonists were, like you said, Lutheran, Presbyterian, they pretty much followed the same dogma. Yes. So this is like the closest to a foreign entity that the colonists have come across, right? Pretty much when you figure that... um most of the colonists came from, you know, the British Isles or uh, Europe. And they had been doing, a lot of the British um, immigrants had their families, if they were, you know, in the in the import-export business or shipping or, you know, merchants or anything like that, had dealings with um, the Dutch and, um, you know, some Germans. But for the most part, I mean that that was their world. Um, of course, there was the the you know the trips down to South America for coffee. Um, but gosh, you know um, they went. Let's see. Yeah, for the colony colonists. Yeah, that would that would be. Um, you know, cause yeah, most- because they knew the natives. They knew the natives had. They had no Christianity. They were trying to turn them Christian. So, yeah. I mean, that was a no-brainer. But this, yeah. this is kind of more difficult. And it must have been very difficult for her because, again, there wasn't that many of them here. Yeah. Yeah, That you know, there was the, the, the ceiling. They could only go so far because of their, you know, their, their religion. Um, and even though Christians, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean... Christians uh, have the Old Testament. Basically, that is for you know. From what I understand from people, that that is just like our, the history, and then you have the New Testament, which is you know what we follow, it, being Christian. So the fact that the Jews don't you know they don't have anything to do with the New Testament, um, that would that would be. That that would be very disconcerting to, you know, really, uh, you know, the 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 holy rollers and the the Bible thumpers of the day. I mean, they, religion was in every aspect of your life. You didn't just you know go to church on Sunday. Yeah, and I have some. Just hold your place because we're getting into this the difference and how I want to show how difficult it was for her to keep these traditions because she is surrounded by people that do believe in God but not their the Jewish traditions. They go to church at different times. They were on um, you know they like for instance the Jews uh, cannot that are practicing their religion after Friday evening. Their Sabbath is on a Saturday, 
our Sabbath as Christians is on a Sunday. There's a big difference right there. The other thing is um, I used to have a, a, a Jewish girlfriend when I went to school. She was my best friend. Her name was Tally. She's in Israel right now. And Brian had been uh, was stuck when he was on his studying different religions before he became a, a multi-faith minister, had met with a bunch of rabbis. We, I mean, this whole Jewish family just took us in. I mean, it just did. And on Friday after sundown, because that's when their Sabbath start, like yesterday was the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, and all their Sabbath start after sundown. Mm-hmm. So after sundown on Friday, they would have to have a special ceremony, and we were part of it, and they would have to light candles, and they would have to have a special meal, and then they could only eat certain things on the Sabbath. I don't know if you had to have any Jewish friends ever, Deb. Yes, I remember the... Um the mom of my my heart sister, who happens to be Jewish, I remember her cleaning the kitchen and and getting you know getting out the uh, the the plates you know all the dishware and the pots and the pans for you know for the the holiday where the, you know you, you had to have no and you can't have you can't cook dairy in a in a pan that has had meat and you know all those different uh, ways of of um, you know celebrating the holidays and and you know living their religion, so yeah, I remember all that. Yes, yes, yeah. So it's, I mean that's going to be very difficult for for Abigail to do um, because her children are, and that's what we're having problems with now as well as us keeping our own traditions with our children because our children are around all these people that don't believe in God. You know what I'm saying? Or they're trying to make them so secular it isn't even funny. But and she would have had the same problem, even though the people around her would have do believe in God wholeheartedly. But like you said, like the real Bible bumping, um, and her children would be influenced by their children and by their other families as well. So let me just read this little thing from um, Jewfact, uh, Jewish Mag. Jewish influence was limited to the Old Testament, respect for the Hebrew language, and an occasional accidental Jewish traveler. Generally, Jews were not welcome in Massachusetts Bay Colony and would not be welcome in reality in Massachusetts until well into the 19th century. Puritan tolerance to alternative Protestant thinking banished Roger Williams, himself a Puritan minister, from the village of Salem, Massachusetts in 1635. Williams proposed a heretical belief to the Puritans, a permission of the most paganish Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worship be granted to all men in all nations and countries. Yeah, that would have gotten kicked out, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. So that, um, okay. uh, let's see. The Jewish community of Newport, Rhode Island, traces its origins to 1658 when Mordecai Campanau and Moses Tanchero arrived from Barbados. They sent back favorable reports to the British West Indies and were soon followed by 15 Jewish families looking to relocate to the tolerant, religious, and opportune economic environment of Newport. So there was another colony um, that came to America besides the ones in New York. And uh, it's, it's, again, they're like the, they were the original slaves and also the original people that, didn't, that weren't tolerated because of their religion, even though they believed in God. It is, it is astounding to me how many guilty Jewish people are out there 
that have nothing to be guilty about. I know. Yep. Okay, so continue with Abigail. Okay. Franks urged Naftali in England to keep up with his morning devotions and cautioned him to avoid non-kosher food, warning him off even his uncle's table. But Franks was also critical of much in Judaism. In the open air of colonial America and likely under the influence of the broad range of philosophers and novelists she read, among her favorite authors were Pope, Fielding, Smollett, Dryden, Montesquieu, Addison, and Gentleman's Magazine, all supplied to her by Naftali. She yearned for a Calvin or a Luther to reform what she deemed Judaism's worst superstitions. She was scathing in her critique of the New York Jewish community, calling its ladies a stupid set of people, and despairing about the pool of Jewish suitors available for her daughters. But the costs of such ambiguities were high. With a limited pool of Jewish marriage prospects, Frank's disdain for most of them and the entire Frank's family's desire to be part of the larger New York community, it was perhaps inevitable that two of her children would take non-Jewish spouses. Oldest daughter, Fila, was the first. In the fall of 1742, Fila secretly married Oliver Delancey, son of a prominent and successful Huguenot New York merchant family. For six months, they kept the match secret, but in the spring of 1743, Fila announced the deed and went to live with her husband. (laughs) Abigail's letters to Naftali spoke of her sense of betrayal and her pain, and she never spoke to Fila again. This was not the last hurt she would feel. Son David married Margaret Evans, a Christian daughter of one of Abigail's close friends. Her younger children never seemed to have married at all. Even sons Naftali and Moses, who married their English first cousins, watched as all of their own grandchildren left the Jewish faith. Of Jacob and Abigail Frank's more than two dozen grandchildren, not one of them appears to have passed on Judaism to his or her descendants. Other family connections were complex as well. In 1718, Frank's father, widowed in 1716, married Grace Mears, with whom he had seven children. Franks despised her stepmother and spared no insult in her prose. But when Grace Levy, left a widow with many young children in 1728, made a bad marriage in 1735, Franks' assessments of her shifted. Through Franks' letters, a rare portrait of a widowed colonial Jewish woman emerges of Grace Mears Levy Hayes as female shopkeeper who single-handedly supported and raised her young family survived a deeply unhappy second marriage and died broken-hearted, too young, and finally admired by her oldest stepdaughter. Frank's letters also draw a, draw a portrait of another early Jewish woman, Grace Levy's oldest daughter, Rachel Levy. Beloved by all members of the extend, extended Levi Frank's family, Rachel married Isaac Mendes Sixtus, Sixtus? In 1740, a decidedly mixed marriage between New York's leading Ashkenazi and Sephardi families. Franks described the Sixtus clan as being in an uproar over the match, and many of them avoided the wedding. Rachel and Isaac removed themselves to New Jersey, where they ran a small country store, and Franks eventually relented in their favor, too. Rachel and Isaac had eight children. The fourth, Gershom Mendes Sixtus, <laughs> became the 18th century's most prominent Hazan religious leader of Shir, Shir, 
Oh, this is just becoming a tongue twister for me. I do apologize. Heareth Israel in his person and in part through the Levi, Levi Franks family, unifying the many vying strains within the colonial New York community. Abigail Franks portrays herself primarily as a parent. She doted on her children, referring to Naphtali as Hartsey, a play on the symbol for the Hebrew tribe of Naphtali, Hart, H-A-R-T, and on heart, love itself. She adored her daughters and thrilled to the youngest ones born when she was in her 40s. Her letters are full of the pain of her children's departures from her, and she struggles throughout her long correspondence between rejoicing in her offspring's successes and the ache of never seeing them again. Her correspondence ends where it begins, concluding that a good name, upright behavior, and harmony within the family are the greatest achievements any family can attain. Abigail Frank's letters are rare testimony to the lived efforts to sustain and adapt Judaism within the realities of Christian New York. Frank's deeply intelligent prose provides a rare example of the first-person views and experiences of an early American Jewish woman as described in intimate conversation with her son. And you can find her letters. Um, there's the uh, the, the uh, Frank's family papers at the American Jewish Historical Society in Waltham, Mass. Letters of the Frank's family by Ellen Smith, Portraits of a Community, the Image and Experience of Early American Jews in Facing the New World, Portraits of Jews in Colonial Federal America. So that's um, so you did get some of her letters? Not Abigail's, no. No, they're in oh. books. Or they're, they're, uh, um, let's see. They're, uh, um, wait a minute, hold on. Oh, she was a very attractive woman. Um, Let's see. No, they're they're in books and and they're up in uh, the archives, but I couldn't find any. Um, of her, I just don't have them here. You have to go see them in person. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's it. Oh, that's that's the end? That's the end. Oh, that was a kind of weird <laughs> ending. <laughs> Didn't say when she died or nothing. <laughs> I know. And that was pretty much it. She died in 1756. I know that. Okay. Okay, no, wait a minute. Here, um, let's see if this, this comes up with... Uh, it says here, this is over at the, um, the Guide to the Papers of the Franks Family. Uh, they have a descriptive summary, but they don't have, uh, they don't have the letters. But it says, uh, um, was born around 1696 to Moses and Rachel Levy, uh, it is uncertain whether Abigail was born before or after her parents' immigration to America. See, they, the other one said she was born in America or born in England. So, um, 
and she received a formal classical education rare for a Jewish woman in the 18th century who was expected to devote all her time to home and family life. She prided herself on her attendance at the Shiraz Israel and her strict observance of the Sabbath and dietary laws. Suspicious of the kitchens of relatives, she even sent kosher, sent kosher food to her son, Naftali, in London. Uh, yeah, though highly involved in secular society, she always remained conscious of her identity as a Jew and tried to teach her children the same. So, um, you know, it just... Uh, uh, it, it, that's it. <laughs> she died in 1756. Uh, there you go. Okay. Well, I have a couple of um, different things from the Jewish mag about other Jews that came uh, into the colonies before we get to Rebecca. So I'm going to do a little bit of that. Okay. Uh, Okay. All right. So we're going back to Jewish Mag. Um, in 1733, the Jewish community of London, feeling threatened by the burdens of caring for an increasing influx of poor German and Polish Jews, sent out 83 of their brethren to Georgia. When the ships arrived, the 83 Jews represented almost 20% of the total population of Georgia, which is kind of a, a big, big thing, 20% pretty big, but there wasn't, you know, Georgia was wildlands. It wasn't, wasn't settled yet. Um, Congregation Mixby Israel, Savannah, Georgia, dates from July 1733, but did not build a permanent synagogue until years later. From almost the beginning of Jewish settlement in Savannah, conflicts between Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jews erupted into extreme tensions that refused to form a Jewish, a united Jewish community. This characteristic tension between the common Ashenazic Jew and the aristocrat Sephardic Jew presaged another 250-year struggle within the Jewish community for definition as to who is and what is it is to be an American Jew, which I found that very interesting. Because they did not have that problem in New York or Philadelphia, right? We just read that. Mm. Their congregation was very diverse. But in Georgia, it was not like that. The earliest Jewish presence in Pennsylvania dates from the early 1710s. Remember they said that the Jews in Georgia and South Carolina, almost all of them, fought for the Patriots, which Mm. is going to be good to note because of the leanings of Rebecca when we get to her. The earliest Jew presence in Pennsylvania dates from the early 1710s when Isaac Miranda settled near Lancaster and became an Indian trader. So they all go into merchandising. They're all traders or merchants. Mm-hmm. So one of the earliest colonies is it was late to develop a Jewish One of the earliest colonies, it was late to develop a Jewish community. Philadelphia, because of its physical location far up the Delaware River, was the furthest west of the major colonial American cities. Philadelphia soon not only became a major port city, but became the gateway to the west. Um, the first Jews to live in Philadelphia, now we're going to Philadelphia, well, we are. The first Jews to live in Philadelphia was Nathaniel, Nathan Levy. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he is... Uh, related somehow to uh, to Abigail. 
because there wasn't that many Jews here, right? Well, yes, they they did. Uh, because they, Rebecca's going to be in Philadelphia also. Yeah. So these people are all related to one another in one way. I, I'm, I'm po- almost positive. Um, Levy acquired a small piece of land between 8th and 9th Streets on the north side of Walnut Street, uh, which became the first Jewish cemetery in Pennsylvania. During the Revolutionary War, the British continued the European custom of executing deserters at the gates of Jewish cemeteries. I did not know that, did you? No. Goodness gracious. The gate of the Wall Street Cemetery still has the marks of British bullets. Uh, the, the first Mayan in the American West was held at the home of Joseph Simon in the frontier community of Lancaster in 1743. That has to be, and I didn't get this far in this article, I apologize. But that has to be a um, a Jewish ceremony. Mm. Let me just look that up while I'm reading. Well, I got my internet. <laughs> oh, good. Simon himself, a frontiersman and Indian trader, and one of the largest landowners in Pennsylvania, employed expeditions led by the famous Daniel Boone to open the Western trading route. Simon entered into partnership with William Henry, who developed the famous Henry Frontier Rifle. Ooh. At the Simon and Henry Forge, the young Robert Fulton learned the metal trade that helped him develop the first steam-powered boat in history. I'm just showing how much the Jewish influence in the land. And actually, if you go back to um, uh, Jews and the Founding, which is the JewishPathways.com, just uh, it has like everything that the Jews influence. Um, they influence symbols on um, university logos. I mean, it, it was really in depth and interesting. So if you want, just go to Jewish Pathways and do a search. Um, okay. So yeah, there are ten men needed for um, Ming Ming Yan which is a Jewish uh, ceremony. Uh, uh, Oh, okay. This is what they do at a funeral. This is a a, a Shiva Minyans is what they did. That's what they call it. So it's it's a Jewish funeral. That's what it is. Um. Okay, back to this. So in 1752, the famous American Liberty Bell was brought over on the Materla, a ship owned by the Jewish firm of Simon, Levy, and Franks of Philadelphia, a permanent Jewish house of worship in Pennsylvania, Nicky Israel, was not dedicated until 1782. But notice it was dedicated during the, the revolution. Um... Jewish immigration to colonial America was not planned or systematic. It was random as opportunities were presented to individuals or small groups of Jewish in Europe, Jews in Europe and the Caribbean. For the most part, the small Jewish American communities that were developing along the British Eastern Seaboard 
enjoyed remarkable freedom of religious expression and economic opportunity. Jews in colonial America enjoyed freedoms that had not been realized for over 2,000 years. Deb, this is incredible. Our country was incredible. Yes. That is not to say that Jews were welcomed and loved wherever they went, but rather the explosive growth of the frontier and the American economy did not focus on the Jews. For political repression of the Jew as well as the Catholics and many other religious and nonconformist sects were the continuous part of the American struggle long after the American Revolution had been fought. Some argue that political freedom was not achieved by Jews until after the Second American Revolution, which was the Civil War. So that's some background on how important their, this, these little communities were and, and what she was up against because it was little tiny sparse communities, right? And that's what she was struggling against to keep her kids really being Jewish. Mm. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I am going to go to Rebecca now. And this is Abigail's granddaughter, is Rebecca. All right. This admired, beautiful, vivacious, intelligent member of the affluent and influential Franks family is a noted figure. This is from JWA.org in Jewish colonial history. This is Rebecca Franks. She is remembered as one of the young women who warmly greeted British officers of General William Howe's army occupation of Philadelphia in 1776. Probably few of these officers realized that her father, David Franks, was Jewish, though married to Margaret Evans, a member of an established Philadelphia Quaker family, or that her grandfather, Jacob Franks, was a prominent merchant who had been president of New York's congregational Sheriff Israel. So her father is David that you had talked about, right? Mm-hmm. And he ended up marrying a non-Jew, which really upset him and his mother. Yes. And was he was he estranged from him or not? Because I know the other daughter, he she didn't talk to for the rest of her life. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't. Was, I didn't say. Okay. Because, well, as, as I read, I'm, I'm curious about that because Rebecca goes back and forth between Philadelphia and New York with her with her relatives and her cousins. So I'm thinking that he wasn't estranged from his from his mother because she knows her grandmother. Yes. Okay. Um, Rebecca Franks was born in 1760 in Philadelphia and raised as a Christian, as was her elder sister. And that probably really bothered her grandmother as well, right? Yeah. I'm Abigail, gonna... go ahead. Well, let's see. She knew of her. When was she born? Um, nineteen seventeen sixty. So she she died. She was born four years after Abigail died. All right. You you tell me when she. Well, yeah. Okay. So. So she didn't know that. She went to her grave not knowing that. Or she heard about her. Right. Okay. Uh, Abigail, named after her father's mother. Uh, well, her elder sister's name is Abigail. Rebecca's elder sister's name is Abigail, who was named after her father's mother, but who's Abigail Levy Franks that we just did. 
Now, Abigail married Andrew Hamilton, an attorney general and acting governor of Pennsylvania. And Rebecca's first cousin was Stilla Franks, wife of General Oliver DeLancey, a loyalist and representative of New York's Angelican aristocracy. Now, how could, if Abigail was Rebecca's grandmother and Sheila was Abigail's daughter, that would make Sheila Franks, Rebecca Franks' aunt, not cousin. Yeah. So why would they put her first cousin was? Um, I don't know. That's her aunt. Sheila's are her aunt. Yeah, let's see. That's really weird. Well, it's that's her aunt. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a composed cousin. Yeah, let's see. Sheila was the daughter of her grandmother. Right, that's her. That Sheila was her father, her father David's sister. Yeah, so she would be her aunt. Mm-hmm. That's very strange. It is very strange. Okay. <laughs> okay, so now we got that figured out. <laughs> Perhaps due to the openness of colonial society, Rebecca Frank's Jewish background seemingly mattered little to those who knew her. In 1775, Major John Andre painted a portrait of her in miniature accompanied by lines of poetry. Um, society manners and dress were always of great interest to her. On a visit with her father to New York, then also under British rule, so these guys are these are loyalists, okay? I figured it out after reading a little bit more. Because they, they're going freely between Pennsylvania and New York. Mm-hmm. And huh? Yes. So they entertained the British in Philadelphia and we'll get into that more. And um but it, it it's more like they didn't have a dog in this hunt, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not that they were yeah, that not not that they were going to spy for the British or take up arms for the British or any of that. They just basically were friends with them and partied with them, you know? That, that's what I get from it. Yeah, plus he you know, they uh they are are um they're merchants. You know, they just want to keep being able to do business. And, you know, at that point, the British were, well, he must have had, you know, the family must have had some really great contracts with Britain, so you don't want to upset the apple cart. Yeah. Okay, uh, society manners and dress were always of great interest to her. On a visit with her father to New York, then also under British rule, she compared the virtues of New York women to those of her own city. The former have more of a sweet countenance and agreeable smile, but were duller, if not more stupid, and too eager to throw themselves at men, she wrote in a letter dated August 10, 1781. And this is when the American Revolution was in full swing. From Flatbush, Long Island. Her own education was informal. There were few public schools, and she likely had a private tutor, which was completely different than her grandmother. Oh, she seems to have her tongue. (laughs) (laughs) 
Her father was a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly in 1748 and a commissionary agent for the British Army before and during the Revolution and for Congress during the war. Apparently, he remained loyal to the British cause and found himself accused of aiding the British. Eventually, in 1780, he was ordered out of the state. Rebecca seemed little affected by these events. Though she might have written a loyalist poem, she was also a good friend of American General Charles Lee, who suddenly at times reminded her of her Jewishness. Attention was paid to her by another English officer, and on January 17, 1782, she married a noted lieutenant colonel who later became General Sir Henry Johnson. He had been in the command of the British garrison at Stony Point, New York, but was forced to surrender the post in 1779. The couple soon left for England. Her father followed at almost the same time. A number of years later, Lady Rebecca Johnson recalled what might have been, quote, I have glory to my rebel countrymen. Would, I go, would to God I too had been a patriot? She said nothing about her Jewish heritage. In fact, by the end of the 18th century, the Franks family ceased any such connection. One reason might be found in the skepticism, if not open hostility to institutional religion expressed by her grandmother, Abigail Franks. Now, I want you to tell me more about that because you just read this about her. And it says that she was a daughter of enlightenment who found organized religious, especially Judaism and Catholicism, innate great need of reform. I don't, I, I just didn't get that from her still trying to keep the traditional faith and the traditions that you read. Well, well did read. Go ahead. I, I, it, she was talking about the superstitions. See, this is where I, I think she and Jefferson would have gotten along famously because they both were uh, very, very much influenced by the Enlightenment. Maybe we should read a little bit about the Enlightenment because she was, she was, um, she, she believed in the traditions because they were, you know, in the Bible and what the ancestors had done. I mean, there's a reason for for every um, every tradition that they do during their their holy days. Uh, you know, the bitter herbs and the the uh, apples and honey and and the eight candles. I mean, they all were a symbol of the stories in the Old Testament. But the established or institutionalized religion, you know, especially Judaism and um, Catholic, you know, the the Catholic religion, uh, with their superstitions, you know, that's what she called them, um, because throughout the centuries, they all, I mean, if you look at the, the Catholic the kitty, the, er, my, my husband's calling for kitties. Um, the, the Catholic religion, it, it's so far from, you know, Peter's church of, you know, built on the rock. And, and Paul, you know, who was the like the salesman of it, he went from town to town to town to town or village to village, you know, speaking of the of of the teachings of Christ. And then you get along, you know, it seems like every influential and and powerful person 
had something different to add to the religion, <laughs> you know. So they all came up with their own different things. Whereas it seems like Abigail, having read all these these books, I mean, I would have loved to have seen her library, um, where she, she, again, she's very intellectual and, and analytical, as Jefferson was. So she was looking at rational reasoning versus the superstitions, if, if you know what I mean. So she wasn't yeah. against the traditions, in the religion, she was against, you know, the the, the um, probably the, the ads on, you know, that that happened over the the centuries. All right. Well, you know what? Let me read about the Enlightenment then before I go back to Rebecca. Okay. Okay. This is from ushistory.org, one of my favorite sites. The Age of Reason, as it was called, was spreading rapidly across Europe. In the late 17th century, scientists like Isaac Newton and writers like John Locke were challenging the old order. Newton's laws of gravity and motion described the world in terms of natural laws beyond any spiritual force. In the wake of, you know what, and the problem with this that I see nowadays, i got to make this bigger because my old eyes, mm. um, is that most people, they don't think that spirituality can go along with science. And that's where we're falling into really bad times. Yeah. Because it can. Yeah. And like, I, I, you know, and um, like, well, like, okay, so let's just, do, I'm going to do a little aside. Brian was talking about the different kinds of skin cells on a chicken because we were looking at the crazy chicken. That's really wild. I need to send you a picture of this thing. Although he has grown back his feathers, but he was saying how how they know that just that this one same not different one same type of cell that makes up a chicken makes up different parts of the chicken's body, whereas our cells are all individualized. You know, like our ears, are, our ear cells are the same as like our kidney cells. All of our, but most of them, all of them are totally different. Our organs are different. You know what I mean? Our skin cells are different. But on a chicken. They have wattles, which are rubbery. They have these kind of, these like rubbery, not, I can't even explain them. You know how their chicken feet are, right? Yeah. Their chicken legs. Yeah. That's made, that's a different material, that's a different material than like their wattles underneath their their uh, chin. And it's different than the, the combs they have on the top of their head. But every single one of these parts of this chicken is made from the, a same cell, a same type of cell. Okay. So he said to me, I'm wondering what the, what, who, the great computer that did this, right? Mm-hmm. See, that's science, but somebody had to do this, had to design this. Yes. And that's spirituality. Yes. And the, problem, and the thing with the Enlightenment, I'm not trying to knock any of this, but it, it had gone too far into superstitions, what you were trying to explain, right? Right, yeah. So this was these learned men trying to bring it back into balance. Well, that's basically it, and, and it was. It, it, it was basically, um, it altered people's views of religion. Um, that, um, they, I mean, they, 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 they just discarded uh, the belief system 
that um, that the human events are controlled by a divinity and that truth can be acquired by divine revelation, see. They uh, they modified all that in, into a belief system um, based, uh, let's see, based on the idea that the world was a rational place that could be controlled by adherence to rational processes. So they right. take the superstition out of religion and, and giving it rational reasoning. Yes. In the wake of political turmoil in England, Locke asserted the right of a people to change a government that did not protect natural rights of life, liberty, and property, which I wish the founding fathers would have put that in instead of the pursuit of happiness. It drives me crazy because people don't understand the founding fathers, as far as property was concerned, was the pursuit of happiness. People were beginning to doubt the existence of God who could predestine human beings to eternal damnation and empower a tyrant for a king. Europe would be forever changed by these ideas. In America, intellectuals were reading these ideas as well. On their side of the Atlantic, enlightened ideas of liberty and progress had a chance to flourish without the shackles of old Europe. Religious leaders began to change their old dogmatic positions. They began to emphasize the similarities between the Anglican Church and the Puritan Congregationalists rather than the difference. Even Cotton Mather, the Massachusetts minister who wrote and spoke so convincingly about the existence of witches, advocated science to immunize citizens against smallpox. Harvard ministers became so liberal that Yale College was founded in New Haven in 1707 in an attempt to retain all Calvinist ideas. This attempt failed, and the entire faculty except one converted to the Church of England in 1722. By the end of the century, many New England ministers would become Unitarians, doubting even the divinity of Christ. New ideas shaped political attitudes as well. John Locke defended the displacement of a monarch who would not protect the lives, liberties, and property of the English people. Jean-Jacques Rousseau stated that society would be ruled by the general will of the people. Baron de Montesquieu, 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 sorry, declared that power should not be concentrated in the hands of any one individual. He recommended separating power among executive, legislative, judicial branches of government. American intellectuals began to absorb these ideas. The delegates who declared independence from Britain used many of these arguments. The entire opening of the Declaration of Independence is Thomas Jefferson's application of John Locke's ideas. Thomas Jefferson did not write the Declaration of Independence. He wrote a draft. And then it was mulled over by five members of the Congress, Continental Congress, the, um, what was it called? I forget. I'd have to look it up. What, the committee, the something committee. And they, um, they decided what, the, all five of them got together and decided what the declaration was going to be. It is not Thomas Jefferson's baby. It's everybody's baby. <laughs> um, the constitutions of our first states in the United States Constitution reflect enlightened principles. The writings of Benjamin Franklin made many enlightened ideas accessible to the general public. The old way of life was represented by superstition, an angry God, and absolute submission to authority. The thinkers of the age of reason ushered in a new way of thinking. This new way championed the accomplishments of humankind. Individuals did not have to accept despair. Science and reason could bring happiness and progress. 
kings did not rule by divine right. They had an obligation to their subjects. Europeans pondered the implications for nearly a century. America put them into practice first. See, I'm going to cry again. Because mm-hmm. we're losing this, Deb. I know. I know. All the, the principles and the concepts that, uh, well, they're not teaching on any of this stuff in schools anymore. They're, they're indoctrinating them into the... the um, the present Bolshevik revolution. Yep. Okay, so that was the Enlightenment. Um, so her secularism, this is Rebecca, we're back to Rebecca, probably influenced her son David, her other children, and possibly grandchildren. Of David Frank's five children, four married non-Jews, and one did not marry. Two of his children were baptized. Rebecca Frank, though not baptized, was surely more at home in the non-Jewish world than that of her grandfather and grandmother. She died on February 13, 1823, in Bath, England. Her husband, Sir Henry, died in 1835. They had two children, Sir Henry Allen and George Pidgett. So, um, was Rebecca Franks Jewish? Her mother was not, her grandmother was. Franks herself seemed never to have raised the question and moved easily among British officers and the Christian society. Yet there remained a tradition, a memory, and despite herself, she has always been considered one of the daughters of Israel. Now, we're going to go into um, when she was in Philadelphia. I just wanted to give you an overview because here we have this young girl. She's in Philadelphia. She was born in Philadelphia. She is an American um, because both of her parents were born here. She's actually an actual-born citizen because both of her parents were born here. You don't have to have the have two parents, two American citizens, to be born a natural American, a natural-born citizen. Um, <coughs> growing up during the war, like right before the war, and she's a young lady during the war. She's in high society, and her father's a loyalist. And as, as we always say, when your father or your husband are loyalists, you're you're just one, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Yeah. So, um, I have a letter, the one letter that remains from Rebecca. From Rebecca or from Abigail? From Rebecca. Okay. Um, It was to her first cousin, Willie. Okay, yeah, why don't you read that because I'm going to get into the society in... um, Philadelphia, and what? how do you say this word? Because we're going to get into that, too. It's uh, an Italian word. Yes. Um, let's see. Um, I have to get to it. I have, I have uh, PDFs, or P, whatever they are. PDF. Yeah, I have PDFs up and all sorts of other things. I can't find it. Let's see. Uh, okay. Messianza. Okay, yeah, because this was a big deal in Philadelphia, and this was right before yes. the uh, surrendered, um, they surrendered, the British surrendered. So, yes, let's read her letter. Okay, all right, we'll get her letter up now. All right, um, this is to uh, Mrs. Cad, as she calls her, because Willie Bond married um, Caldwallader, General Conwallader, Uh 
and she he he of course was um uh, her husband Willie Bond's husband was one of Washington's most trusted generals uh, General Cadwallader I mean um, so this is to Mrs Cadwallader February nineteenth seventeen eighty four so this is after the revolution and they're in uh, Killer Knot. Let's see, what is, let's see, what is Killer Knot? Um, oh, you don't tell me that. Okay, anyway. The night before last, I had the satisfaction of hearing from you, a pleasure I which much more frequently I could enjoy. But the vile sea, how much happiness does it deprive us of? But most willingly would I encounter its dangers to visit Philadelphia again. But alas, I fear I never can hope for that. All of your eloquence will not prevail while he can he will stay, either in Ireland where we are now or England and his wife must obey. Talking about her husband. I couldn't help smiling at that part of your letter that so gravely reprobates grandeur and dissipation. You are indeed consumed, old lady. Now if I who have it not in my power to enjoy such things was to rail against them, the world might excuse me. But in you who have all the rich gifts of fortune is laughable, really. Becky tells me you are again in for the plate. That is pregnant, poor toad. Why don't you follow your mother's wise example? She always contrived matters, so as only to be that way once in seven years. Billy Hamilton once made a speech at Dr. Smith the day you dined there as a bride, which you have fully versified. Do you, re do you re recollect it? I dare not trust it on paper. I can tell you very little of your American acquaintances in London, as I have left the place last August. And indeed, when there, I knew very little of them except Mrs. Arnold, who always behaved more like an affectionate sister than a common friend. She still continues the same. I hear every week or fortnight from her. She expects to be confined to the beginning of next month. She was also pregnant. She a true Franks in that particular. She was and is still more noticed and more liked than any American that ever came over. She is visited by people of the first rank and invited to all their houses. As for Mrs. R. Penn, she is and ever will be the master. No alteration except, if possible, she is larger and hoarser than ever. Her, his, her sister is thought pretty. But I do not hear of her have any particular admirers. Oh, she just... Oh, the Franks were very frank. I saw very little of them while in London. Mrs. P. was too violent and American to have any intimacy with a British officer's wife. She is lately lane of a son. Mrs. Bingham arrived, but a little while before I left London and while I was confined, so did not see either her or Mrs. Hare. The former spent part of the summer at Brighthelmstone, where she was much admired in London. She is not known, and I hear has had but six ladies to visit her since her arrival. At first she talked of going to court and living away at a great rate, but that idea is now quite thrown aside, and she finds an American in London and an American in their own country quite different beings. Mrs. Arnold is the only one who has been the least noticed. I can tell you nothing of your British acquaintances. I've seen more since I came to Ireland. Colonel somebody, it was undecipherable, is still in Canada, so is Colin Campbell, and married to a very beautiful woman, a daughter of Guy Johnston. Remember me to General and Mrs. Dickinson, Colonel and Mrs. Cadd, and all the rest of your acquaintances. I blow your spouse a kiss, and mine blows you one at the same time. I've not heard from someone who's illegible. As I write to Becky, I say nothing to her of that branch of your family. 
When you receive this, may you be happily fixed in some place, Philadelphia, which in spite of everything I shall always prefer to every other place. Advise and tell me soon that you have given General C. another son. Kiss those who have already, you have already for your sincerely affectionate B. Johnson. If you see B. Tillman, tell him his old flirt sends her love to him. So... And that was that's one letter that uh, exists from Rebecca. So she, so she was quite happy where she was. Yes. Yes. Um, but she loved Philadelphia. I mean, it was just splendid for her. It says in another uh, article about her. Um, uh, winter set in, and this is 77 to 78 when Washington was at Valley Forge and everybody was miserable. Winter set in and British General Sir William Howe was content to enjoy the comforts of Philadelphia, which his army occupied. Some of the finest mansions in the city had been commandeered for Howe and his officers. Uh, they embarked upon an almost endless series of parties, galas, and assemblies, and other socialites with the many young, pretty, charming, and affluent ladies of the city. Miss Franks was certainly one of these. She was renowned for her beauty, wit, and conversational acumen. She enjoyed close friendships with a coterie of rich and prettiest girls in town, Bessie, Sarah, Mary, and Peggy Shippen. The Chew sisters, Mary Elizabeth and Peggy, who were of appropriate age, Wilhelmina Bond, Willie Bond, Mrs. Cadwallader, Nancy Redmond, Mary White, and others. Um... Upon settling in Philadelphia, Howe made a point to visit David Franks at his Woodford estate to establish a working relationship with the agent in charge of victualizing the British, feeding the British Army in Pennsylvania and on the frontier. Uh, the, let's see. The general was accompanied by his aides and top staff, including the dashing Major John Andre, who encountered Miss Franks and her, her friends. The encounter was pleasurable. All those handsome young men in their impressive officers' uniforms and the beautiful young women responded instinctively. A pattern of daily visits ensued. Even Howe took part. Andre drew sketches of the ladies and composed poetry. We have no evidence of how Mr. and Mrs. Franks liked the situation, but there was nothing wrong with finding a way to please your best customer. So, um, you know, they, uh, let's see. The year before tragedy. Hello. Um. Let's see, daughter. Let's see. Okay. Uh. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, basically her um. Her uh, time in Philadelphia was just a bunch of, uh, you know, parties and social events and hanging out with British soldiers and, you know, being the belle of the ball. Well, and that had its place as well. Um, Keeping the uh, British officers happy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Like I said, you know, they were merchants, and um, her father became the the place, you know, he had the business of, of feeding the 
the British Army. So you yeah. you keep the British happy. Okay, um, now I'm going to read um, a little bit more about Rebecca. The celebrated Miss Frank, so distinguished for intelligence and high accomplishment in revolutionary times, could not properly be passed over in a series of notices of remarkable women of that period. In the brilliant position she occupied in fashionable society, she exerted, as may well be believed, no slight influence. For wit and beauty are potent champions in any cause, for which they choose to arm themselves. And that was very true. Well, we women were um, more powerful than we knew, okay? And actually, well, I'll get into this another time. Um, so, again, like you said, they're merchants. They're, they're, they want to make money. They want to stay alive. So you're going to take your beautiful, pretty daughter and put her out there, and she's going to make everybody happy and feel comfortable so you can do deals, right? Yeah. Admired in fashionable circles and courted for the charms of her conversation, she must have found many opportunities of exercising her feminine privilege of softening austerities and alleviating suffering, as well as of humbling the arrogance of those whom military success rendered regardless of the feelings of others. Though a decided loyalist, her satire did not spare those whose opinions she favored. It is related of her that at a splendid ball given by the officers of the British Army to the ladies of New York, she ventured one of these, those jests frequently uttered, which must have been severely felt in the faint prospect that existed of a successful termination to the war. During the interval of dancing, Sir Henry Clinton, previously engaged in conversation with Miss Franks, called out to the musicians, Give us Britain's strike home. The commander-in-chief, explained she, has made a mistake. He said he meant to say, Britons, go home. <laughs> the keenness of her irony and her readiness at repartee were not less promptly shown in sharp tilting with the American officers. At the Festival of the, say it? Uh, the what? The Festival of the Machanza? Messienza. Messienza, where even Whig ladies were present, Mrs. Fr- Miss Franks had appeared as one of the princesses. She remained in Philadelphia after its evacuation by British troops. Lieutenant Colonel Jack Stewart of Maryland, dressed in a fine suit of scarlet, took an early occasion to pay his compliments and gallantly said, I have adopted your colors, my princess, the better to secure a curious reception. Dying to smile on a true night. To this covert taunt, Miss Franks made no reply, but turning to the company who surrounded her, explained, How the ass glories in the lion's skin. <laughs> <laughs> the same officer met with an uh, other equally severe rebuff while playing with the same weapon. The conversation of the company was interrupted by a loud clamor from the streets, which caused them to hasten to the windows. High headdresses were then the reign of fashion among the English bells. A female appeared in the street, surrounded by a crowd of idlers, ragged in her apparel and barefoot, but adorned with a towering headdress in the extreme of the mode. 
The Franks readily perceived the intent of this pageant, and on the lieutenant colonel's observing that the women was equipped in the English fashion, replied, Not altogether, colonel, for though the style of her head is British, her shoes and stockings are in the genuine continental fashion. See, and that's what, I'm, what we're saying, that, like, she's torn. She's still an American. Mm. Right? Yes. And, and, her, and her, home, her home has been invaded. <laughs> Yes. So, she's not, again, this is one of these ladies and these people that are not, they're not going to fight for the Britons, they're not going to fight for the Britons, but they're not going to go against them as well. Okay, so I need you to do the festival. Okay. Now... All right, um, and it, she was uh, was one of the princesses of the Mistianza. This Italian word, signifying a medley or mixture, was a, applied to an entertainment or series of entertainments given by the British officers in Philadelphia as a parting compliment to Sir William Howe just before his relinquishment of command to Sir Henry Clinton in departure to England. Some of his enemies called it his triumph on leaving America unconquered. A description of this singular fit may be interesting to some readers. Um, anyway, so I therefore abridge one written, it is said, by Major Andre for an English ladies' magazine. I have seen a facility of the tickets. <laughs> I am so The facility... Uh, well, anyways, he saw tickets issued in a volume of American historical and literary curiosities. The names are in a shield on which is a view of the sea with the setting sun, and on a wreath the words, Luceo Descendens Octo Splendore Resurgum. I never had Latin or Italian, so um, I'm not even sure which that is. But At the top is General Howe's crest with the words, Vive Vale. Around the shield runs a vignette, and various military trophies fill up the background. Well, that wasn't ostentatious, was it? The entertainment was given on the 18th of May, 1778. It commenced with a grand regatta in three divisions. In the first was the ferret galley, on board of which were several general officers and ladies. In the center, the Hoosier galley bore Sir William and Lord Howe, Sir Henry Clinton, their suite, and many ladies. The Cornwallis galley brought up the rear. General um, Nifossen, you know, the Huguenot there, and suite, three British generals and ladies being on board. On each quarter of these galleys, informing their division, were five flatboats lined with green cloth and filled with ladies and gentlemen. In front were three flatboats with bands of music. Six barges rowed about each flank to keep off the swarm of boats in the river. The galleys were dressed in colors and streamers. The ships lying at anchor were magnificently decorated, and the transport ships with colors flying, which extended in a line the whole length of the city, were crowded as well as the wharves with spectators. The rendezvous was at Knight's Wharf at the northern extremity of the city. The company embarked at half past four, the three divisions moving slowly down to the music. Arrived opposite Market Wharf at a signal, all rested on their oars, and the music played God Save the King, answered by three cheers from the vessel. 
The landing was at the old fort, a little south of the town and in front of the building prepared for the company a few hundred yards from the water. This regatta was gazed at from the wharves and warehouses by all the uninvited population of the city. When the general's barge pushed for shore, a salute of 17 guns was fired from His Majesty's ship Roebuck, and after an interval, 17 from the Vigilant. The procession advanced through an avenue formed by two files of grenadiers, each supported by a line of light horse. The avenue led to a spacious lawn lined with troops and prepared for the exhibition of a tilt and tournament. The music and managers with favors of white and blue ribbons in their breasts led the way, followed by the generals and the rest of the company. In front, the building bonded the view through a vista formed by two triumphal arches in a line with the landing place. The pavilions, with rows of benches rising one above another, received the ladies, while the gentlemen ranged themselves on each side. On the front seat of each pavilion were seven young ladies as princesses in Turkish abbots and wearing in their turbans the favors meant for the knights who contended. The sound of trumpets was heard in the distance, and a band of knights in ancient habits of white and red silk, mounted on gray horses, capriasoned in the same colors, attended by squires on foot, heralds, and trumpeters, entered the list. Lord Cathcart was chief of these knights and appeared in honor of Miss Akhmati. One of his esquires bore his lance, another his shield, and two black slaves in blue and white silk with silver clasps on their bare neck and arms oh, held his stirrups. The band made the circuit of the square, saluting the ladies, and then ranged themselves in a line with a pavilion in which were the ladies of their device. Their herald, after a flourish of trumpets, proclaimed a challenge, asserting the superiority of the ladies of the blended rose in wit, beauty, and accomplishment, and offering to prove it by deeds of arms according to the ancient laws of chivalry. At the third repetition of the challenge, another herald and trumpeters advanced from the other side of the square, dressed in black and orange, and will claim defiance to the challengers in the name of the Knights of the Burning Mountains. Captain Watson, the chief, appeared in honor of Miss Franks, his device, a heart with a wreath of flowers, his motto, love and glory. This band also rode around the list, drew up in front of the white knights. The gauntlet was thrown down and lifted. The encounter took place. After the fourth encounter, the two chiefs, spurring to the center, fought singly till the marshal of the field rushed between and declared that the ladies of the blended rose and the burning mountain were satisfied with the proofs of love and valor already given and commanded their knights to desist. The bands then filed off in different directions, saluting the ladies as they approached the pavilions. The company then passed in procession through triumphal arches built in the Tuscan order to a garden in front of the building and then descended to a spacious hall painted in imitation of Siena marble. In this hall and apartment adjoining were tea and refreshments, and the knights, kneeling, received their favors from the ladies. On entering the room appropriated for the pharaoh table, a cornucopia was seen filled with fruits and flowers, another appeared in going out, shrunk, reversed, and empty. The next advance was to a ballroom painted in pale blue, paneled with gold, with drooping festoons of flowers, the surveys pink, with drapery festooned in blue. Eighty-five mirrors, decked with flowers and ribbons, reflected the light from 34 branches of wax lights. On the same floor were four drawing rooms with sideboards of refreshments, also decorated and lighted up. The dancing continued till 10. The windows were then thrown open, and the fireworks commenced with a magnificent bouquet of rockets. At 12, large folding doors, which had hitherto been concealed, were suddenly thrown open, 
discovering a splendid and spacious saloon, richly painted and brilliantly illuminated, the mirrors and branches decorated, as also the supper table, which was set out with 430 covers and 1,200 dishes. When supper was ended, the herald and trumpeters of the blended rose entered the saloon and proclaimed the health of the king and royal family, followed by that of the knights and ladies, each toast being accompanied by a flourish of music. The company then returned to the ballroom, and the dancing continued till 4 o'clock. This was the most splendid entertainment ever given, by, ever given by officers to their general. The next day, the mirrors and lusters borrowed from the city's citizens were sent home with their ornaments. The pageant of the night was over. Sir William Howe departed. The folly and extravagance, uh, displayed, extravagance displayed were apparent not only to the foes of Britain, it is said that an old Scotch officer of artillery, when asked if he would be surprised in an attack from General Washington during the festivities of the day, replied, If Mr. Washington possessed the wisdom and sound policy I have ever attributed to him, he will not meddle with us at such a time. The excesses of the present hour are to him equivalent to a victory. So you have to remember that at this time, George Washington was up in Valley Forge, and his men were were cold and dying and hungry and sick, and and he was just trying to get through, um, you know, the winter. So, uh, let's see, what it is to see in one month tonight to March Wednesday. Let's see. General Wayne writes on the 12th of July, "Tell those Philadelphia ladies who attended House assemblies and levees that the." Heavenly, sweet, pretty redcoats, the accomplished gentlemen of the guards and grenadiers have been humbled on the plains of Monmouth. The knights of the blended roses and of the burning mount have resigned their laurels to rebel officers who will lay them at the feet of their virtuous daughters of America, who cheerfully gave up ease and affluence in a city for liberty and peace of mind in a cottage. Yeah. There you go. You know, and again, they were, you know, they were using the the people of Philadelphia's sparse resources to do this disgusting display. I'm sorry. I, ah, they're so arrogant. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be freaking kidding me. People are dying of smallpox in Philadelphia right now. Mm. You know? I mean, and they hardly have any provisions. Like you said, it's winter, you know, Um and winter in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is just as harsh as winter in New York. Yeah, but they, they had all the British supplies and everything. The British yeah, were doing they, well. But the Brit- they got all those supplies from us. Well, yeah. And it says, and this is the difference. This is the difference. This is unbelievable. Well, it is believable. But, I mean, the the, the contrast is, is pretty astounding. Um. Let's see. When the Americans, on their return to the capital, gave a ball to their own and the French officers, and it was debated whether the ladies of the Missianza should be honored with invitations, the question was soon decided by the reflection that it would be impossible to make up an agreeable company without them. Yep. Yes, because we were always intending to get back together and heal the nation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the again, corrupt hats, but um, going along with that Christian theme of healing. Yeah. 
so I mean, we they were all still all Americans. Yes. Yeah, I think um, Rebecca liked to party. <laughs> yes, she did. She was not like her grandmama. Oh no! Well, in ways she was because uh, <laughs> she had a quite the uh, sarcastic wit. It is said. Yes, I just read some of that. Yes, yes. <laughs> what did she call him? A, a what did she call him? Hold on, if I can get this back out. She called him. I'll go all the way back up. Um, what did she tell him? Something about the lion. It looks good in the lion thing. That was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, she did have a, a way of... Um, and she got away with it, though. She, you know, and that's what Brian says all the time. He's like, we just want, we just finished watching Fast and Furious 6, I think it was. Yeah. Did you ever get, did you ever find uh, Exodus by any chance? No, no, not yet, no. Okay. So we just, we just got finished watching uh, Fast and Furious 6 and, and my husband and his infinite wisdom. Every time, after once in a while, he just comes up with these little gems. And there's a scene where this, the two men and the two girls of the one team, the, the good guys, are going up to try to get information from somebody. And the guy is going, they're distracted. The the guy goes, oh, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to do this, and you do this over here. And the girl looks at him, and I think she's Spanish, too, and she has the accent. And she said, no, you're not. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? She goes, no, we're, it, that's a man. He's a man. They were like, yeah. And she just walked away. She goes, come on. She goes to the girl. And they walk away. And my husband goes, see, beautiful women can get away with anything. <laughs> yes. And she was beautiful. She was lively. She could say anything to these people. Well, that's like Peggy Shippen. Yeah. You know? <laughs> True. Peggy was really good at that part. Yes, she was. <laughs> she was like... <laughs> And, these, you know, these people, these girls, these women were Americans. They were not the British subjects that these men were used to back in England. Right. We could speak our own minds as women here. Yes, yes. And and, and it is interesting um, because as much as, you know, as, as much as the king was their king, he wasn't their ruler. Right. You know, he, and they didn't like what Parliament was doing. Even a lot of the loyalists didn't like what Parliament was doing. So, uh, Yeah, she said to that one, uh, that one uh, lieutenant colonel, how the ass glorified, glories in the lion's skin. Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was oh. <laughs> rather Shakespearean in her. her uh, yeah. Yeah, she's not going to take anything. And, that, you know, again, that's what we we said, that the loyalists had so much problems when they did go back to England because they were Americans. Right. Yeah, and, and of course, the arrogance of the British knew no bounds. And if you weren't one of them, you were less than. So they were, you know, the colonists were always, like I say, the redheaded stepchild. You know, yep is showing my age because I haven't heard anybody say that in years. But um, <laughs> and, and you have to understand what that means, the red-headed stepchild. The redheads were at one time thought to be um, 
uh, dangerous. In, in they're like daughters of demons at one point in you know the superstitious uh, time of the of our history. Uh, so, um, and the stepchild, of course, was never uh, you know never equal. So it, it was a very interesting time. For for Rebecca, because when you think about it, okay, her her grandmother Abigail, who uh, you know really tried to keep the the um, Jewish culture going, the traditions, and and was proud of being a Jew, a Jewish woman, a Jewess as they called them. Um, she was proud of it, and she she tried to instill it in her children. And of course, you know, as we all know, when our children decide to make you know. They have their own thoughts on things, and uh, God, can you imagine Rebecca and Abigail getting together and having a discussion about things? I mean, you yeah, have um, Rebecca grew up without her grandmother's influence. Her mother was not Jewish, right? And um, her and and she was hanging out with all these Christians. So, and then the Enlightenment, of course, had taken root, and uh, I don't even know if she went to church. It doesn't say anything about her going to church or or synagogue or anything. So, you know, she just might have partied (laughs) before she got married and raised children. Well, she was born in 1760, and her grandmother was, between the times of, let's see, um, when did she come here? And the, we're talking like almost 20, more than 20 years apart. Almost yeah. More than that. Yeah, I mean, see, she died in 1756, Abigail. And then Rebecca was born in, in uh, 60. 60. And, and so she was, she was like a, a, a young woman. At this time, let's see, 60 to 77. She's 17 years old. Yeah. You know. We all know 17-year-olds all are, are, you know, know everything. (laughs) Well, we're almost at the top of the hour, and I want to tell the folks, since this uh, election is heating up, um... We need knowledge, ladies and gentlemen, to get our republic back. The people up in Washington are not going to do it. The, even the president that we, whoever it's going to be, is not going to do it. It's just they'll slow the train down if it's Trump, and we'll just be heading to the, the train to hell if it's Hillary. Oh. So the only thing that we have is on our side is knowledge and faith, and to get a tool to help you with knowledge, which will be our past, our history. See, we we need to regress, not progress anymore. We need to go back. That's why Deb and I have been doing this history lesson for many years. This is what our desperate trying to get everyone back on track and see where we used to be because we're not there anymore and it's getting worse. So, a tool you can use to do that is to go to Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us. It's on TalkShoe as well as our show, the, the Women of the Revolution show, 
and also be on cooperative radio show. We're thinking of making a station, but we couldn't do that because satellite wouldn't let us go on. But now that we're not on satellite, Brian's thinking of making it a station mm. because everything has to so the Patriots Pub is the Continental Congress of 1787, day by day, in the founder's words, done by three self-taught scholars, no politics at all. Deb and our uh, podcast is a history lesson, but we sneak in politics every once in a while. We're not as rigid. But the Patriots Pub was only done as a purely educational endeavor. So please download it, listen to it on your iPhone, listen to it on your whatever device you have. It's patriotspub.us. You will have the tools to get this republic back because you will know the truth. And as always, I let Deb take us out. Okay, you can find the book of Abigail's letters um, at, at, on, in Amazon if you just put in Abigail uh, Franks. Um, you, you can, there is a book written that has her letters in it and it's over at Amazon. It's where I found it anyways. Uh, but it wouldn't have gotten here in time. But um, another thing that I want to say about this program is this is an introduction to these lovely, amazing, um, and and some feisty women. Uh, We just want to give you a jump start uh, to look into your history. As, you know, Susan says, knowledge is so important. And it's really, I mean, even the best riders, this is my horse life coming in, even the best riders, Always go back to the basics, and this is what we need to do. We need to get back to the basics, and because uh, because our our founders were were definitely on the right path, and we're not so much anymore. Um, and as always, I again say yes. We we do have um, uh, a kids in uniform in Afghanistan. They're they're still fighting over there. In fact, we just lost another one, Joshua. Uh, this past weekend um so please give us a, a thought and a prayer if you do so to the families of these uh of our kids in uniforms and the kids in uniforms because a lot of them are in very dangerous places you're not going to hear about them the media doesn't uh, seem to want to talk about um all the drone strikes and in seven countries that this president has bombed, and uh, we're sending more troops to Iraq, uh, and they say that they're just there to train. Well, they can still get shot and blown up and, and all sorts of things. So our kids are still in danger. Uh, so please, like I say, give them your thoughts and prayers and send them a card, or, you know, you can always go on uh, online, find support uh, troop support organizations that that uh, send them packages where you can get addresses. So and you can send them your own packages. But uh, we have a lot to uh, a lot to think about between now and the election, and and we must keep their feet to the fire at this point. And by all means, keep your powder dry. And again, we miss you, Loki. We're keeping on, keeping on here. All right, people, thank you for stopping by. We're going to say good night, and we will be back next week, same time, same place, with another remarkable woman of the Revolutionary War time period. So with that, we say good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.